Welcome to They Create Worlds, Episode 4, A Tale of Cycles. If anybody wants to for something completely different. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. The uh, topic of what we're going to cover today had come up when we were hanging out in my basement during a power outage. We were having one of our normal dinner conversations about the video game industry and decided to head on back to discuss things further, but the power was out. So we ended up just hiding in the basement in order to keep cool during the summer. And from the conversations there, a few topics came up. And one of those is the fact that the video game industry goes in cycles, ups and downs, left and right. These transitions often take place during hardware transitions, such as between the 8-bit and 16-bit era, so on and so forth. These highs and lows continue on, but we also want to talk a little bit about what actually constitutes a real video game crash? Everyone knows about the one that happened in the 80s. There was a near one in the early 90s. It's interesting on how the industry always seems to strike a new balance in the end. Or at least almost always. Obviously, when the entire industry crashed in 1983, 1984, there was not a new balance struck. Basically, the entire industry went away for a couple of years, the console industry. But that's really a topic for a completely different podcast. The rest of the time, though, the industry has tended to find a new balance fairly quickly before a great deal of damage is done. We know that Atari was really big back in the 70s, right? Absolutely. And they owned what percentage of the industry? Well, at their peak, they controlled about 75 to 80 percent of the entire video game industry. And that would be both hardware and software, because there was very little third-party development back then. In fact, it was the proliferation of third-party development that was one of the primary factors that led to the crash in 1983. So mm-hmm. when you're talking 75 to 80% of the market, you're not just talking in terms of hardware, but software as well. Okay. So what would you say would be the Atari generation era? Because that's sort of like the highlight, the big end game to sort of like the big breaking point between the first crash, or the only crash, and what we consider now to be the modern industry. I presume that before that crash, there were these cycles going on between uh, when video games first were introduced and uh, when Atari went out. Absolutely, that's correct. So the video game industry is traditionally, or the console industry specifically, obviously this does not concern arcades and computer gaming so much, but the console industry is traditionally divided into generations. Through the traditional numbering, the current generation would be the eighth generation of consoles. That's your Xbox One, your PS4. I would argue that the traditional way of numbering the generations is a little bit flawed. I think there's more nuance in the early console generations than this system allows for, so there should probably be at least a couple of more generations shoehorned in there, but that's that's really a tangent that I won't get into. But the point is that there are multiple generations, and as the hardware improves and as we move on to new systems, There is a transitional period always where the new hardware is coming in, where the old hardware is going out, where software companies don't have a good handle on the new hardware yet, so maybe the games aren't as good on the new hardware, whereas even if the graphics or animations or whatnot isn't quite as impressive on the old system, some of the games are actually better at the end because companies have been working with that hardware for a long time. So you get this weird kind of place where old hardware isn't selling, but new games aren't quite there yet. And so that tends to cause kind of a lull in the market. Obviously, there was the one great big crash, which we won't go into detail now, but there were definitely cycles even before that. And these generations of hardware tend to last about five to seven years. 
is about what a cycle is, though obviously it took the industry a while to figure that out, which is part of the reason why some of the earlier transitions weren't as smooth as some of the later transitions, because people didn't know what to look for and what to aim for in terms of a transition yet. Okay, so what was the really big console then before the Atari, the 2600? Well, there really was no very big console before the Atari VCS in terms of selling millions upon millions of units uh, in in the way we would think of a big console now. Mm -hmm. But the home market started with the Magnavox Odyssey, which I think most people are familiar with. It was a console that was released in... 1972, probably around August or September. We don't know exactly the day that it launched because records weren't kept as assiduously back then and and street dates weren't as set in stone as they are today. But it launched about August or September of 1972. Mm -hmm. And that system basically had the market to itself between 1972 and 1974. It was a quirky little system. It didn't really use integrated circuits so much. It was mostly discrete components, diodes, but it was a digital system. Some have tried to claim over the years that the system was not digital, that it used analog components, and that's not true. It was a digital system, but it didn't use transistor-to-transistor logic. It used diode-to-transistor logic, so there were a lot more discrete components. It didn't have very much power. It could basically just generate dots on the screen. And so you really had to use your imagination to picture a time or a place. It did come with overlays. Yeah, I was going to say, they, they, I remember seeing a couple of uh, demos of the console. You could you had an overlay you would put onto your television and add instructions on how to play. And you really ha- had to... The game itself didn't tell you whether or not whatever happened happened. You had to follow the rules they laid out and almost on an honor system as to whether or not you scored or not. That's exactly correct. It didn't even have enough power for scoring. It basically just had the power to generate dots. And then those overlays, which were plastic and they uh, clung to the television through static electricity, would kind of set the background and set the scene of the game. So it was very primitive. It sold. It didn't sell in great quantities. Mm -hmm. The most commonly claimed number is that sold about 350,000 units between 1972 and 1975. So that's not a great deal. Whether you consider that a success or not, again, that's a whole nother debate that I really won't get into, but it was there. You know, it started the market. It was pretty much the first big home or any home console. Exactly. And so they had the market to themselves until 1975. Mm -hmm. And then what happened is you had a real breakthrough in technology. By the middle of the decade, you had microprocessors, though at this point microprocessors were really still too limited or too expensive to use in a consumer product. But large-scale integration had gotten to the point now that you could create an entire video game on a single microchip. And this would be not a microprocessor, obviously. It would be a ROM chip. But you could actually do a game like Pong on a single chip instead of using a bunch of discrete components, which makes it very expensive and finicky. So once you got to the point where pretty much anybody could do a very simple video game through a microchip, that's when you really had the first proliferation of home video games. And the microchip is pretty much what allows us to do things like cartridges or cards that tell the game console, okay, here's the program I want to run, and here's the scoring, here's the sprites or whatever I want to display, and what I consider the boundary, so on and so forth. Absolutely. Though, again, since at this point we're still at the point where microprocessors are not being incorporated, Mm -hmm. it's not a programmable system. So these tend to be called dedicated consoles to separate them from programmable consoles because you could basically only play the game that was hardwired in the memory of the console in that microchip. So you had to buy a whole new console every time you wanted a different game or plug in a different console when you wanted to play a different game. That's correct. And there were a couple of companies that 
experimented with the idea of having a controlled deck that you could plug individual games in uh, as cartridges. Uh, Coleco mm-hmm. did that, for instance, with the Telstar Arcade. But again, this was still dedicated hardware because this control console didn't have a microchip in it. It just had all the peripheral controls and uh, whatnot that you could then plug a cartridge with a microchip in it. So it's still dedicated hardware. You're not programming anything. But for the most part, that's correct. If you wanted to play a different game, you would have to get a different console. Now, most consoles, after the first couple of units came out, most consoles would be four-in-one games, six-in-one games, where it would have maybe a couple of different Pong variants and a couple of different target shooting variants uh, all on one system. So you weren't buying a different, a whole new console just for one specific game. You could buy a console and it had like three or four games built into it. So it's, it's worth it at that point. But they're all very primitive games. You're not talking about being able to go from a racing game to a platform game to a maze game to a flight simulator. We're talking about a couple of variations of sticking dots on the screen, either knocking them around with paddles or shooting them with a controller. It's almost like, um, to use the Atari analogy, say in the tank game for Atari, you can have different modes there where the tanks are invisible or the bullets are invisible or you have different play fields. It takes that same sort of concept, except it's solid state. I would buy a tank console that had four or five different modes that of playing tanks or something very similar to it, and I could switch those modes itself. Exactly. And the pioneers here were, again, Magnavox. Magnavox was one of the first companies to release a dedicated console. They basically... The Magnavox Odyssey had a bunch of different games. They were all very similar. They were all based on generating dots, but they had a variety. So they had a couple of trivia games. They had a couple of chase games where essentially one dot is pursuing the other dot. They had a couple of ball and paddle games, essentially Pong, before Pong, because Pong was actually somewhat based on the Magnavox Odyssey table tennis game. And then what happened is Pong hit big in the arcades and Magnavox and the people at Sanders Associates, led by Ralph Baer, that had actually created the console, realized that they could have just stopped with Pong and not bothered with any of those other games because for a very brief period of time, everybody was playing Pong. So what they did is they took the table tennis game from the original Odyssey and they put that on a series of microchips that they had Texas Instruments build for them, and they turned that into a much smaller stripped-down console that basically just played table tennis games, and that was the uh, Odyssey 100 is what they called it. They kept the Odyssey name because they had already built that brand, Mm -hmm. and uh, they called that the Odyssey 100, and then they had a slightly more complex one that came out about the same time called the Odyssey 200. What did the 200 do? It was the same thing? It was still a Pong game like the 100? Right. So the Odyssey 100 had two games, tennis and hockey. And basically the difference between tennis and hockey is tennis is the Pong style thing where you have two paddles kind of in the middle of each side of the screen separated by a center line in the very middle of the screen and they bat a ball back and forth. Hockey changes it so that you have the paddles on the far ends of either screen and instead of a center line you have a solid line on each side of the screen with just one little hole in the middle that represents the goal and then your paddles are protecting the goal instead of batting the ball back and forth with each other so the odyssey 100 just had those two variants the odd uh, the odyssey 200 added another variant called smash which was essentially a racquetball type game where you're bouncing the the ball around the screen and also included a kind of primitive on-screen scoring. The Odyssey 100 didn't have on-screen scoring just as the original Magnavox Odyssey didn't have on-screen scoring. So the two consoles were almost identical, but there were slight differences between them. And those both came out in 1975. 
Mm-hmm. And Atari also entered the home market in 1975. And the Atari game is the one that's really credited with setting the market on fire, getting people excited about the market. Now, the funny thing is, Magnavox may have actually sold more systems than Atari did. It's not certain because sales figures are so hard to come by. But Atari had made such a name for itself in the arcade and Pong had made such a name for itself in the arcade that Atari entering the market was a really big deal and it kind of drew attention to the fact that, hey, home video games are a thing now. Since Magnavox had already been in the market for several years and had only had middling to poor success, there wasn't as much excitement generated by Magnavox releasing a new console as there was by Atari releasing a new console in the minds of the general public. Hmm. And Atari's system was more sophisticated, uh, slightly more sophisticated. As I said, the Odyssey 100 was basically just the Magnavox Odyssey stripped down to just play ball and paddle games and spread across about two or three chips from Texas Instruments. The Atari system was actually a single-chip solution. Gene Lipkin, who was the marketing vice president of Atari at the time, has claimed in interviews that it was the most sophisticated integrated circuit created up until that time, uh, The most uh, in a, for the consumer market. There might have hmm. been more advanced things in, you know, big mainframe or mini computer systems or in industrial right. applications. But in terms of the consumer market, it was the most sophisticated chip yet designed. So they got their entire game on one chip rather than three like Magnavox did. Mm-hmm. It was cheaper to produce it that way, I presume. I would imagine so. There were a couple of other advantages. The Magnavox Odyssey, the original Odyssey, as well as the 100, was black and white. The Pong system was a full-color system. Not everyone had a color TV back then, but if you had a color TV, you got stunning color. Mm. It also provided for on-screen scoring, very similar to the on-screen scoring in the Pong arcade game, which is something that the Odyssey didn't have. And the Odyssey had used a very primitive control system, the original Odyssey. It had separate horizontal and vertical controls, two different knobs, one to move a dot up and down, one to move a dot left and right. And then it had a third knob to control the spot that constituted the ball. So Atari's Pong in the arcade had a segmented paddle. Mm Mm-hmm. It was divided into eight segments, and where the ball hit the paddle determined what angle the ball would be returned to the other side. The Odyssey was much less sophisticated. It could only return the ball on a straight line. Oh. So they put a third knob in that would allow you to control the motion of the ball a little bit as it moved back to the other side to try to give it a little bit of English, as they say. And in fact, they called it the English control for that reason. Pong, of course, just had a single knob to control the paddle, and then the ball, you know, went off depending on which segment it hit. Mm -hmm. So the Odyssey 100 and Odyssey 200 continued to use that three-knob system because they didn't really make that many enhancements over the original Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Whereas Home Pong from Atari, just like the arcade game, just had the one knob. So it had a much nicer control system. It had much nicer graphics. It was, generally speaking, a better system. Mm-hmm. So that really got consumers excited. And it also had the backing of Sears, which was very important. Sears were big back then, kids. Sears was huge. I would say that Sears was the Walmart of today, except that that's not really a fair comparison because Sears wasn't a discount retailer. It wasn't trying to sell you the cheapest stuff at the cheapest prices. It was a high-quality retailer, and it was the retailer. There's a reason that the Sears Tower is the tallest building in Chicago, the tallest building in the United States. Sears built that thing. (laughs) Sears used to be very big. Everyone would have their catalog that would, they'd buy things out. Kids wanted to get their video games right out of the Sears catalog. Exactly. And Atari marketed the system through Sears exclusively for the first holiday season. 
after the 1975 holiday season, Atari manufactured their own games and marketed them themselves and continued marketing them through Sears. But having that Sears alliance also gave them a kind of credibility in the marketplace because they were being backed by the largest retailer in the country. So the market really started in 1975, but the market was still fairly limited in 75. This is largely because you have to ramp up production. Atari is just building their factory at this time. They're just starting to get these systems out, so it takes a while to ramp up production. Atari was able to produce about 150 to 200,000 units in that first holiday season. This is contrasted with Magnavox producing about the same number, maybe about 180,000. So again, Magnavox might have outsold them. It just depends on whether Atari was more on the low end or the high end. And it depends on how accurate that 180,000 figure for Magnavox is. Now, now, would you say that Magnavox-Atari transition, would that be the first one of these transitions? high-low transition rebalancing of uh, the technology? In this case, no. And the reason for that is that the Magnavox Odyssey never did all of that much in its original incarnation. Mm -hmm. So while there was definitely a technology transition from a a discrete component system like the Odyssey to a dedicated console based on LSI circuits, Mm -hmm. there wasn't enough of an original Magnavox Odyssey market to really be affected. Okay, so the Magnavox and the first Atari, would we say that Generation Zero, or uh, as far as the console numbers can go? I would really call it Generation Zero. As I said, you know, in the way that the generations have kind of been classified by scholars and journalists so far, pretty much everything that's a dedicated console, including the original Odyssey, is considered Generation 1. I would make a distinction between the Magnavox Odyssey and then these LSI systems, and I think using that Generation Zero designation is actually a really good idea. I I would go with that, because it acknowledges that there was something beforehand, but it was something that made such small impact that you're not kind of giving it a full number. You're just kind of saying, yeah, it was here, but really the fun starts in 1975. Okay. And as an aside, I really mean that. I like that. I'm going to steal that. Yay, I'm a contributor! <laughs> Woohoo! No, because I'd, ne- I'd never thought of that before, but I, I really? seriously, it's a good oh, idea to the, call the way you The way you explained to me, it just seemed like, okay, this is would be Generation Zero. Yes, I, I like the, that the, idea. The solid-state things before they get programmable with Generation 1 with Atari. Uh... Well, remember, these are still not programmable. Right. I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. The non-programmable ones are, I would consider Generation oh. Zero. No, no, I'm, I'm saying I would consider the Ma- just the original Magnavox Odyssey Generation Zero. Oh, really? Well, because... And not the not the ColecoVision or the other ones wouldn't be lumped into that? No, or Am no, I no. getting confused here? I would consider the original Magnavox Odyssey Generation Zero, the one released in 1972. Okay. Then I would consider Generation 1 to be the dedicated consoles based on LSI circuits. Okay. Because there is a technology jump. Because okay. the original Odyssey used mostly discrete components. It didn't have a microchip in it. All right, that makes sense. So even though the gameplay on some of the dedicated consoles is similar to the gameplay on the Odyssey, Mm -hmm. the technology is much more sophisticated because it's a microchip instead of dedicated, you know, diodes and transistors and whatnot all on, all separate. On a big board that's just shoved in a box. Exactly. So I like the idea of calling the original Magnavox Odyssey Generation Zero and then calling the Odyssey 100 and Home Pong and all the systems that came after that, Generation 1. Okay. So the market in that first year total was about 350,000 systems. Again, these are market estimates by analysts. Mm -hmm. We don't have documentation from Magnavox or documentation from Atari or these other companies about how many systems they sold. But analysts predicted that there were about 350,000, maybe 400,000 top systems sold in 1975. So the technology got really big after that. I mean, it was big in that holiday season, too. According to reports, people were putting their names on waiting lists to make sure that they would get uh, an Atari Pong system through Sears. Mm -hmm. And they did sell out of all they were able to make, which, as I said, was somewhere between 150 and 200,000 systems. So it was a big deal, but you had a supply constraint on the market. Then what happened in 1976 is that a little company called General Instrument got involved. 
General Instrument was a semiconductor company on the East Coast, headquartered in New York, mm-hmm. that also had a sizable European presence as well. And there was a Finnish company that was making a television and was thinking about putting a video game in, perhaps built into the television. As far as I know, this television was never actually built. But because they were thinking of doing this, they actually came to General Instrument and said, could you make us a chip, a microchip, that could play a video game so that we can stick it in this television? And so the European branch of General Instrument up in Scotland took up this challenge, and a couple of engineers there created a Pong on a chip. When Atari did theirs, they did theirs in-house. They actually had a chip designer named Harold Lee who they contracted to make a chip for them. And then they had a couple of established semiconductor companies do the actual manufacturing. But Atari actually designed their chip themselves. Hmm. So that was a proprietary chip. General Instrument then created their own Pong on a chip. And General Instrument was a parts provider. They were not a consumer electronics company. Their entire business was predicated on designing chips and other parts for other companies to put in their own products, OEM manufacturing stuff. So Hmm. when General Instrument created this chip, rather than creating their own Pong system, they said, hey guys, we've got a chip that can play Pong. If you want to make a Pong game, why don't you buy our chip for $5 and put it in your system? Oh my. So this opened the floodgates because Pong had been very popular in 1975 during the holiday season. And now there was a company that was saying, we're making Pong chips that anyone can have. Now, was there a copyright issue that would come up here? Because I would think that some someone has to obviously own the Pong name as a game. Well, they didn't. they didn't use the name Pong. Okay. So these are sort of like knockoff games, and they call it Gong or Bong or well, they Bounty Ball had, Game. They they had a lot of different names. I mean, they're not knockoffs in the sense that, you know, this is very simple technology. I mean, we're talking about you know a couple of str- a, a couple of sprites and some very simple physics routines. So, General Instrument didn't take a an existing Pong chip and dissect it and reverse engineer it. Mm-hmm. They did their own engineering. I mean, it's a very simple concept, so it's not that hard for another company to just look at what's going on on the screen and recreate that themselves. Okay. So they were clones in the sense that the gameplay was the same, but they weren't rip-offs in the sense that the chip that General Instrument created, they created entirely on their own. But they didn't have something that they, Atari, could sue them over. No, I mean, if somebody had used the name Pong, because I believe Atari had that name trademarked, then they could go after them for the trademark, but... The game technology itself wasn't really trademarked or copyrighted. Exactly. Now, Magnavox, and this is a whole other ball of wax that we won't really get into, but we could get into on another podcast on the whole legal mess that surrounded these kind of games. Magnavox did control some patents on some basic video game technology. And so they actually did go after a few of these companies for royalties Hmm. in the courts. But Atari didn't have anything that they could go after any companies for because the basic concept is, it's it's so basic, you can't really say that you're stealing much there from from a legal standpoint. Okay. So... Now that companies didn't have to design their own video game, all they had to do was design a casing and some controls and then plug in an existing chip, and voila, they had a game system. This really opened the floodgates, and literally dozens of companies got involved in making video games. Most of the companies were very small and didn't have much of an impact on the market, but the one that really stood out was Coleco. Mm -hmm. Coleco was a toy company. They were mostly known for swimming pools at this point in time. We're talking about small plastic pools, wading pools, and small swimming pools. Little kiddie pools that pretty much everyone's played in. Exactly. And this is obviously a very seasonal business because people are most interested in pools during the spring and summer and not so interested in the fall and winter. So they didn't have a big Christmas item 
They did have a few other small toy lines. They had some tabletop sports games and the like, but they were really focused on swimming pools, and they really wanted to get a good Christmas season item. So they decided to get into this video game market. And because they had a connection with Ralph Baer, who had created the Magnavox Odyssey and who kind of kept up on all the technology that was going on, they actually learned about the general instrument chip before most other companies did. So they were the first company to order chips from General Instrument. Hmm. This became important because General Instrument did not end up having enough chips to meet all the demand because there were literally dozens of companies that wanted to get involved and they all wanted to make 200,000 systems, 500,000 systems, however many systems they wanted to make, and they couldn't create the Pong on a chip fast enough. So nobody got their chips on time or got their full allotment of chips on time except for Coleco because Coleco ordered first. So they were taking delivery before the glut started. Now, what the chips that General Instrument was putting out, was that still just Pong or were they doing other games? It was mostly Pong. What it was is it was six, it was advertised as six games. And the chip was called the AY38500. That was just the part number of the chip. Mm -hmm. And it played four ball and paddle type games, including one of which was what they just called a practice mode, where you have a single paddle and you're just hitting the ball and it's bouncing off the other side of the screen and coming back to your paddle. Just like if you're a kid, you know, kicking a soccer ball against the wall just to practice kicking a soccer ball and it bounces back to you. You know what I mean? So you can practice just hitting the, making sure you can get your paddle in front of the ball and not lose. Exactly. So it had a table tennis game. It had a hockey game. It had the squash game, the racquetball type game where you have two paddles on one end of the screen and you're bouncing it off the screen. You know, the three things that the Odyssey 200 had. It had the practice mode, which would be game number four. And then it had two target shooting games. And you were just using the paddle controls for the target shooting as well. It didn't come with a light gun or anything fancy like that. So it was a six-game system, but if you get right down to it, it was mostly just ball and paddle stuff again. You could implement all six games, or you could just implement a partial group of the games. So not every system that shipped with this Pong on a chip actually implemented all six games. Sometimes they would implement fewer of them. Or sometimes they would release multiple models, and one would be a slightly cheaper model that only did a couple of games, and one would be a more expensive model that did all of the games or something like that. Huh. So Coleco dominated the market in 1976 because they got their chips first, and they got their full order of chips, and so they sold a million systems in 1976. And they called their game Telstar, and it was a pretty basic console, but it sold really well. And... Even Magnavox switched over to this General Instrument Pong on a chip. They released one more system with their proprietary Texas Instrument-style chips, mm -hmm. but the majority of the consoles they released then on were on General Instrument chips, so they got on the bandwagon too. And Coleco introduced a lot of different consoles. They introduced some more limited ones, some more advanced ones. They released some that had detachable controllers. Well, not detachable controllers, but wired controllers versus knobs on the system. So the very early dedicated consoles were controlled directly on the system itself. So you had this little box that had the all the hardware in it, and the box had a couple of knobs on it. And you actually had to, both of you had to kind of set this console right in between the two of you and use the knobs directly on the system. Huh. The next group that came out in 1976, a lot of them had wired controllers. Sometimes they were detachable, sometimes they weren't, but the important thing is they were wired. So you could actually hold a single paddle controller in the comfort of your own lap. Then some of these systems would also be four-player variants where you could have four paddles on screen at once and they came with four consoles. And Coleco even introduced one that did have a light gun that was attached to the system in addition to the paddles so that the Target shooting game was more exciting. So you had those kind of variants. And this is what made up Generation 1. And this is really what made up Generation 1, is these dedicated consoles. And Coleco was the market leader. Magnavox and Atari were kind of neck and neck. And then beyond that, there were a couple of other companies that had one or two successful systems. But the three biggest were definitely Coleco, Atari, and Magnavox in this time period. 
Okay, so moving on then, what would be the transition point between Generation 1 Generation 2, which I would be the first low point that caused upheaval? Sure. So in 1976, uh, between 3 and 4 million consoles were sold. So we went from 400,000 in 1975 to 4 million in 1976. A big jump. Yeah, huge jump. So at this point, everybody wanted to get involved in video games. I mean, a lot of companies had gotten involved in 76, but even more companies now wanted to get involved in 77 because the systems were getting so popular. So this is what created kind of the first market glut and led to kind of the first market transition. Now, to understand the transition that took place in 77 and 78, it's really necessary to take a step backwards and discuss consumer electronics as a whole in the 1970s. Okay. The late 60s is when large-scale integration really started becoming feasible. And then in the early 1970s, the microprocessor was becoming feasible. At the same time, you also had the development of the first practical LED displays as well. And the first moves towards LCD displays, though LCD displays really came into their own in the late 70s rather than in the early 70s. So this was really the beginning of the idea of consumer electronics. Now, obviously, a television is a consumer electronic, a stereo is a consumer electronic, a transistor radio is a consumer electronic, and those all existed far before the 1970s. Mm -hmm. But this is really when you were getting a larger category of consumer electronics that were being powered by integrated circuits and then eventually even microprocessors. So there were a couple of very quick boom-bust cycles that happened in the early 1970s. The first handheld calculators started coming out in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later, the first digital watches, which for some reason everyone thought were a good idea. A pretty neat idea. A pretty neat idea. I have failed at my Douglas Adams. <laughs> That's why you keep me around, right? That's right. Start, uh, started coming out. And what happened in both cases is that they were very expensive when they first came out. And then the technology got cheaper very quickly because of the continuing pace of Moore's Law. And the prices started to drop very quickly. And a lot of companies got into the market very quickly. So both of these markets crashed in pretty short order. There was a brutal calculator war between 72 and 74 in which Texas Instruments basically laid waste to everyone else who was making calculators. Yeah, pretty much every calculator now is still Texas Instruments, except for maybe a few Casios. Exactly. And then you had a similar thing happen in digital watches in 74, 75, where everybody and his brother got involved in making digital watches, and it was a bloodbath, and a lot of companies lost a lot of money. So there was a pattern that had already emerged, which is hot new technology comes out. Everybody wants to get in on it. Too many companies get involved. Prices drop like a rock. And then everyone is left with excess inventory or inventory that's too expensive. And it's a bloodbath and most of the companies get wiped out. It's unsustainable. Exactly. It's unsustainable. And the exact same thing happened in video games to a degree. After 3 to 4 million systems were sold in 1976, the prediction was that there would be 10 million systems sold in 1977. Hmm. But by the beginning of 1977, it was already clear the price erosion was happening. The original systems were coming out for between about $70 and $100. The Atari system was a $100 system when it first came out. The Coleco system was closer to a $70 system when it came out. It was a little more primitive. It was black and white rather than color. Plus, General Instrument was manufacturing their chip in such high volume that the chip was very cheap. It was a $5 chip. Hmm. So Coleco was able to go a little cheaper. They were able to go closer to $70, $80. But by the beginning of 1977, systems that had been $60 the year before were now closer to $20 to $30. So there was kind of a race to the bottom. Now, more advanced systems were being released in 77, systems that had more games, systems that had more features, 
different kinds of games were coming out. Uh, Atari released a system that was a video pinball system that did Breakout and some pinball games and stuff like that. There were some driving games, some first primitive driving games coming onto the market. So games were becoming more sophisticated in 1977, and this new set was, again, in that kind of $80 to $100 range with these dedicated consoles. But even though they were more capable than the older systems, they weren't that much more capable than the older systems. But you now had a really big price divide between the more primitive systems and the more advanced dedicated systems coming out. And just so I'm clear on this, the more advanced systems, we still haven't transitioned over to the programmable consoles yet. These are still, we have a game that has five or six different modes on it, but it's still basically the same game. Sure, and now they might have even as many as 10 different modes, and they might have a couple of more interesting varieties, like some of those driving games I was talking about, or some of those pinball games, or that kind of thing. Right. Atari had a, a stunt cycle game based on their arcade game that had a handlebar controller rather than a, a paddle controller. So yes, things were getting more sophisticated, but we're still talking dedicated consoles. Dedicated hardware console. And integrated circuits rather than microprocessors. Well, I mean, a microprocessor is an integrated circuit, but LSI circuits rather than microprocessors. Right. Now, at the same time, though, you did have the first programmable systems coming out, too. So in 1976, you get the first programmable console. It came to us courtesy of Fairchild, which was one of the most important chip companies in the very early days. They invented the planar process for creating transistors. They were the first company to market with a practical integrated circuit. So they were a very important chip company, and they were basically the company when Silicon Valley sprung, because as people left Fairchild and established other companies, they created kind of this this full Silicon Valley infrastructure. Intel, of, for one, was a spinoff of Fairchild. Really? So, oh, yes. So Fairchild was an incredibly important company and still at this point had a lot of clout. And Fairchild had decided, as had several other chip companies, in the early 1970s when the consumer electronics boom started, they decided like Texas Instruments, like National Semiconductor, like a few other companies, to not only be chip makers, but also be consumer electronics companies. And for the most part, this didn't end well for most of those companies. But because they decided to get involved in digital watches <laughs> in the early 70s, they had a consumer division. So they were on the lookout for other consumer technology. And they ended up making a deal with another company called Alpex Computer, a smaller company, that had created a prototype programmable video game system. Fairchild bought that system. They changed it. The original system had been based on an Intel processor, but Fairchild had their own microprocessor called the F8. So they, of course, wanted their video game system to work on their own microprocessor. So they, they had to do that, and not all of the console was ready for production yet. They had to figure out how to insert cartridges without static electricity destroying everything and, <laughs> you know, inserting and removing cartridges. Wear and tear. Exactly. They had to design the cartridges, figure out what those were going to look like. And so there was a lot of work to be done, and an engineer named Jerry Lawson led that project to create the Fairchild Channel F. The F presumably stood for fun. I think in hindsight, one has to wonder about calling something the channel F, because I think the first thing that comes to mind for most people is the letter grade F. But there you have it. I'm not a marketing guy, so what do I know? <laughs> You're a historian. <laughs> but that seems like a kind of a poor idea to me. So the channel F came out in 1976. It was released in very limited quantities in 1976. They only got about 50,000 systems out that year. And the reason for that is they had a devil of a time getting FCC approval for the system. The thing about all these television games is they're generating a video signal that goes to a television. And if you don't properly shield the system that's generating that signal, then everybody around gets to share in the video signal you're sending to your television. Which is really a lot of fun. We uh, A lot of people today don't actually experience this so much anymore but it was actually a really big problem back then you'd actually have 
things where anyone who was doing, say, ham radio and they were transmitting signals and they would start messing with other people's televisions because there was really, really poor shielding and protection for all electronics. Exactly. And so by this time, by the time the video game systems were out, the FCC did have standards that these consoles had to reach in order to be releasable. They had to not cause interference, and they had to be able to accept interference from other systems. You still, I think even today, still see that on certain pieces of electronics where it says that it's FCC classification so-and-so, and this unit has to accept interference and can't generate interference that kind of thing. Within certain frequencies. Yeah, exactly. So all systems had to go through FCC testing, and some companies had an easier time getting their systems through than others. Atari, for one, really didn't have any problem because they were in bed with Sears, and Sears had been making things like televisions for a very long time, and so they were very familiar with the FCC testing process, and so Sears helped Atari get their first systems through FCC testing and FCC approval very easily. So Atari didn't have that much of a problem. Coleco had some initial problems, but Ralph Baer came along and saved them at literally the last minute and helped them pass. But Fairchild had a devil of a time. They were not used to building consumer electronics, Mm -hmm. and it took them a very long time to get the FCC approval they needed. So they didn't actually get to start shipping their console until November. There are some websites and books out there that claim that they were shipping their system starting in August of 1976. That's incorrect. I've seen New York Times articles from November 1976 that say Fairchild has just started shipping their video game system. So unless the New York Times was lying, they didn't start shipping till November. It wasn't <laughs> August. And so they couldn't start shipping until November. So they got very few systems manufactured before the end of the year. So only 50,000 got on the market. Very small number. So programmable consoles were not a factor in 1976. In 1977, Fairchild was able to ramp up production, and Atari was releasing its video computer system, the VCS. So you had more programmable systems in the market. Now, Fairchild decided to be very conservative with their system because they had just gotten creamed in digital watches. They manufactured a ton of digital watches, and they failed to sell a ton of digital watches. And they lost a ton of money. Their consumer division was in bad shape. So they were resolved not to repeat the same mistake in the video game industry. So they only manufactured about 200,000 systems in 1977. They probably could have sold more than that if they had wanted to, but they did not want to produce all that many systems. Atari manufactured about 400,000 systems in 1977, which was pretty much all they could do because, again, they're just starting production. And this is when they're putting out the Atari 2600. Exactly. They called it the video computer system back then. It didn't become named the 2600 until later. Mm-hmm. But it's the same system. It's just that they later on changed the name to the 2600, which was based on the part number. The part number of the system was the CX2600. And so they started calling, when they started having other video game systems, they started calling it by the model number rather than by the marketing name of video computer system. So Atari manufactured about 400,000 systems, some of which they were not able to manufacture in time for the Christmas buying season because they were having all sorts of difficulties. Fairchild manufactured about 200,000. There were a couple of other companies in the market in a very limited way. RCA released a system in the middle of the year that was an absolute disaster, the Studio 2. It Hmm. had some problems. It was very primitive. It was black and white at a time when everyone was embracing color. It did not have wired or detachable controllers. You had to use a keypad right on the system itself, just like the old systems in 1975-76. So it really sunk in the market. It was a non-entity. They didn't get the memo. Exactly. So Fairchild and Atari were really the only names in programmability that year. So you had low-end systems at this point that were going for about 20 to 30 bucks. You had dedicated consoles that were more sophisticated, the latest releases, going for 80 to 100 bucks, And you had programmable systems 
Fairchild and Atari that were going for between 170 and 200 bucks. The Atari system was a little more expensive than the Fairchild system. It was also more capable in most ways. It had more RAM, but it used sprite graphics, whereas the Fairchild system actually had a frame buffer. Hmm. Atari deliberately chose not to have a frame buffer to save money. So with the Fairchild system, since it had a frame buffer, you could control the entire screen. It gave you control of all the pixels on the screen which meant that you could draw a lot more objects. So if you were playing, say, a card game, it was better for something like that because you could display lots of cards on the screen at once without resorting to any kind of tricks. Whereas the Atari system was entirely sprite-based. You had a background, and then you had up to five what they called player missile graphics that you could impose on top of a background. Mm -hmm. And they used various tricks to get more graphics on the screen at one time, which I won't get into because... A, that's a tangent, and B, I'm not a very technical person, so if I try to explain it in too much detail, I will no doubt get it wrong. <laughs> but the point is, the Atari system was in most ways superior to the Fairchild system, but the Fairchild did do a couple of things that the Atari system couldn't do as easily. So you had that at the top of the market. So basically what happened is, during 1977, when 10 million systems were supposed to be sold, about 5 to 6 million systems were sold instead. Now, obviously, that's still a very large number, so you can't get too disappointed about selling 6 million video game systems. Mm -hmm. But what happened is that most people were buying the low-cost, heavily discounted last year's model systems, or they were upgrading to programmables and buying a programmable system and a few cartridges for it. They weren't buying the middle stuff. They weren't buying the middle stuff. They weren't buying the new dedicated consoles. So what happened is in 1978, dedicated consoles did not do well. And the companies that were in dedicated consoles, which were everybody but, I'm sorry, 1977, not 1978, which was everybody except Fairchild and Atari, essentially, did not do well that year. And so you had what some have called a crash. There are some people that refer to the crash of 1977. Mm -hmm. First of all, the crash really happened in 1978, if there even was a crash, because in 1977, a lot of games were sold. It's just companies didn't do well because they were sold at discount prices. It was 1978 where the market fell apart. But it really wasn't a crash because... When there's a crash, like what happened in 1983, you basically wipe out the entire market. I mean, for example, the home console market, hardware and software combined, went from a $3.2 billion market in 1983 to an $100 million market by 1985. That's a crash. It killed almost everybody, and everybody stopped making video games. That's a crash. What happened here was a market transition because everybody knew that the dedicated consoles were only going to have a limited shelf life. So it's not surprising that dedicated consoles fell apart, and dedicated consoles falling apart didn't stop companies from making video games. Atari and Fairchild were already making programmable systems, and they were already planning to build on that. Magnavox was already in development on a programmable system of their own, which they released in late 1978 as the Odyssey 2. So the only really major video game company that left the market during this time period was Coleco. Coleco did completely abandon the video game market in 1978. They chose to focus on the electronic handheld game market instead, which was also booming at the same time and also helped to cut into dedicated console sales. So it really wouldn't be accurate to call what happened during that time period a crash, but there's no doubt it was a market transition. So if I'm really understanding everything here right, you, this is the first real transition that happened. You had your dedicated consoles of very Gen 0, Gen 1, and then we have the first transition really to programmable because we don't have enough programmable consoles out there yet, and they're really expensive. Their adoption rate is lower, but we still have a glut of uh, people who are still producing dedicated console games and trying to advance that technology, but because that technology isn't as good, if I'm going to spend that same amount of money 
and I have my choice between this new dedicated console and this programmable console that costs, say, roughly 150 bucks each, I want to go for the programmable one where I get more te- the newer technology and stuff. And then you have the older technology that's trying to get phased out because I only have 10 bucks. I want to buy a console for my kid for Christmas. Let's buy this cheap thing for 10 bucks. So it really disenfranchises the middle of the road sort of thing. But since we have a transition going on, it's really, you have to get with the game and advance your technology, or otherwise you're going to be left behind. So the company, the reason Coleco left, from what I'm understanding here, is that they didn't see, oh my, people are developing programmable consoles. We should really transition to that. Instead, they decided to put all of their money on I just want to do dedicated consoles. Let's advance and upgrade that. You can see that a lot of industries have this same problem. Within the last five to ten years, you had borders going out of business because they decided to just dump all of their money directly into, I want to, we're going to go purely books locally. People still want to buy books locally, feel the paper sort of thing. We don't want to transition into e-readers, and even though when they started to sort of dip their toe into that, they went with a competitor's product, Amazon, and they weren't really getting money. They were just sort of like, yeah, you can buy books locally, or you could pretty much buy it through Amazon. So what that leaves us then is you, you've got a transition, and I think that in the video game industry, a lot of companies weren't really prepared for the rapid transition. You said that they settled eventually on roughly around five years, but, I mean, this is the very first thing, and that's probably why there was a crash later on, because you got transitions going on, but no one knows how to accurately do it or handle it properly. Exactly. That was a very large part of it. And, uh, you know, I couldn't put most of that better myself than what you said, and and you're exactly right. Coleco... Uh, just to get into a little more detail on that, they decided to go with a halfway approach. Mm-hmm. They released something in 1977 called the Telstar Arcade. And the Telstar Arcade was a triangular system with three control faces. So one control face was a steering wheel and I think maybe a gear shift. One control face was a gun for target shooting and one control face was a traditional paddle controller setup. And this system accepted cartridges, but it was not a microprocessor-based system. Basically, each cartridge had a LSI circuit on it with a little bit of custom circuitry that caused its games to be slightly different than the games on, say, you know, cartridge number two. You know, the same chip in each cartridge, but slightly different circuitry plugging into that chip to unlock different variations of driving and shooting and ball-and-paddle gameplay. And so they released multiple cartridges for this Telstar Arcade that plugged in, but there was no microprocessor in the Telstar Arcade. It wasn't programmable. It was still dedicated consoles. You know, each cartridge had the complete game on the chip. And so they didn't go full programmable, and so they ended up getting left behind using that kind of in-between technology. Atari was briefly experimenting with doing something similar, but they dropped it in favor of doing the video computer system instead. And that's why they continued on to dominate the industry. Exactly. And then to kind of wrap up the story of this first period, something very interesting happened in 1978. The public was very happy to buy programmable video games, but retailers thought that because the dedicated console market had fallen apart so quickly and because electronic handheld games using LED displays were becoming so popular. They thought that video games just might be over, and so they hedged their bets. So Atari decided to double the amount of systems they produced in 78 over 77. They were able to sell most of their systems in 1977. They created 400,000 of them. They sold about 300 to 340,000 of them. And then I think... By the early next year, I think they'd sold essentially all of them, but they probably had to heavily discount kind of those last 100,000 or so units, you know, just to get them out of the channel. Mm -hmm. So they decided that the market was probably going to double in 1978. So they produced double the consoles. They produced 800,000 systems. Fairchild continued to be very conservative. 
they didn't really increase their numbers very much over 1977 because they were still afraid that the whole market was going to collapse on them any second because they'd been there, done that with digital watches. So what happened is Atari got orders for about 500,000 systems, 400 to 500,000 systems. And that was it. Retailers refused to stock anymore because retailers thought that video games might be over. But the public was actually very interested in them. So what happened is that there ended up not being enough systems at Christmas 1978. So Atari sold out all 500-some-odd thousand systems that they took to retail, Mm -hmm. but they were left with excess inventory because retailers refused to take any more systems. Because at, at this time, consoles... Nowadays, people buy consoles all year round. I mean, obviously, there's a bump at the holidays because there's always a bump at the holidays, but consoles are bought all year round. At this time, consoles were a very expensive product, and they were only bought during the Christmas season. So when Atari is manufacturing 800,000 consoles, it's not like they're selling those systems throughout the year. Basically, they're getting one big round of orders from retailers sometime in the late summer, early fall. And then that stock is meant to last all the way through to Christmas. So it's not like retailers could see the consoles were selling nicely in the beginning of the year and then order more at the end of the year. They were doing all of their ordering just for the end of the year. So marketing back then was really different because everyone bought the big ticket items around Christmas. You didn't really buy big ticket entertainment items as the year goes on because people didn't make as much back then. The culture was different and all sorts of reasons. Exactly. So by the time retailers realized that the systems were actually selling like hotcakes, it was too late to do a reorder because the t- by the time reorders would get shipped to them, the Christmas season would be over. And come December 26th, any stock of large ticket items like video game systems that you still had in your possession were worthless. And Atari actually ended up changing that in 1979 because then since they had those leftover 300,000, 400,000 systems, they started the practice of marketing video games year-round. And they helped kind of begin to overcome that stigma, though they would still remain primarily a Christmas item for some time. So 78 was a down year for video games a little bit as well. But it was because retailers misread the market, not because people were actually no longer interested in games. And it was a market transition, too. Exactly. Retailers, just like technology companies, didn't understand market transitions yet. Neither did retailers. So retailers didn't realize yet that there would be a new video game that would be better than the old video game and that people would be interested in upgrading. Retailers just kind of assumed, okay, fewer video games were sold this year, so I doubt people are going to buy video games anymore. And so that's, you had kind of this disconnect between what the public wanted and what retailers thought the public wanted. Which causes problems. (laughs) Exactly. But they sorted out in the end, and obviously the VCS then went on to become highly successful, and things were great for a few years until the crash in the the early 80s, which we won't really talk about now. So that sort of just gives an overview of what the first real big transition between 0-1 and Generation 2 where we went from the LSI circuit to programmable things. And then this continues on with generation 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, all the way up to 8, where the transition is we have new technology comes out, and because of Moore's Law, the older stuff is cheaper to produce. And we have the new technology out, so we got to get rid of the old technology. we got to buy the new technology if you don't move on and uh, evolve with the way things have been changing you're not going to survive as a company. And even still today, when these transitions happen, a lot of companies end up leaving the market, becoming less dominant, becoming less, rising to power. Some some of these companies will rise to power too. You had Nintendo was pretty much dominant during 80s and um, early 90s. Then it switched over to the PlayStation for uh, quite a few generations. One, two, bit of three. And then it switched over to the Xbox being the big dominant one for a while. And it's just transition. Exactly. There have been a couple of companies that have led the market two generations in a row. There has never been a company that has led the market three generations in a row. That pretty much covers what a transition is and pretty much the history of what started the entire transition cycle. 
Is there any reason from your research as to why the five years, give or take, seems to be the industry norm, or is that something that's dependent on technology that might change as technology advances, where it might get bigger or smaller, or is it uh, something else entirely? Well, as near as I can tell, it is about the march of technology. Moore's Law, of course, says that chips double in power have in size every 18 months or so. Obviously, you can't release a new console every 18 months because a console is a very significant purchase and your users can't keep up, plus your developers can't learn a completely new hardware system every 18 months. So you you can't follow Moore's Law exactly. You need enough time that people are ready to make another big purchase, the technology is advanced enough that you can skip ahead a couple of generations of technology, and you need to give your developers of software enough time to become familiar with your current system that by the end of the hardware cycle they're creating really impressive games just because they know the hardware inside and out. And if you want an example of the transition of how that hardware worked, just think of the Super Nintendo when it first came out. You look at F-Zero and how that looked, and then you want to see what they were doing at the end. Look at Donkey Kong Country or Secret of Evermore. Exactly. And so it just so happens that kind of the perfect intersection of developer mastery of hardware and general public being willing to buy new hardware and technology advancing has worked out to be about five to seven years so far. We will see you next time. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.